Well, the wonderful um, PA team have just uh, asked me to swap my microphone, and so I'm just talking a little bit now to make sure that they've got everything else they want it. That sounds much better, doesn't it? Thank you guys so much. Well, if you're a visitor this week, you're in for a bit of a surprise. My apologies in advance. Because we're in the midst of a five-week series looking at God's gift of sex, how it can be rightly enjoyed and how it's often abused. And I have to say, it's not my usual baptism topic. <laughs> so the story so far. So Paul is writing to a small group of Christians um, in Corinth. So Corinth is just uh, southwest of Athens, which is just a bit up here off the, off the top of the page. And here is uh, what Corinth used to look like, or rather what it came to look like after it fell apart um, with its Acropolis up behind on the mountain above. So this is the context. Corinth, as you can see, is a port city, and it was the crossroads. Underneath that picture is the Diolkos, which is like a, it was a, an early version of a canal. It was actually a set of rollers that went from one uh, gulf to the other, which cut across the whole of the, the southern section of Greece. So it means you could get from there to there in you know, half a day instead of sailing all the way around. So Corinth was really busy, port city with port morals as well. Uh, that's very significant. So we looked uh, last week at the morality of Corinth and we found that they were a hypersexualized culture, um, much like our society today. And that uh, sexual culture, that, those sexual mores in Corinth, had caused overwhelming problems of relationship and identity for the small group of young Christians in Corinth. So we saw last week the disastrous effect that uh, that uh, sexual understanding, sexual culture had had on them, had then, and that it has for us today too. This week, we're looking at what happens when things go wrong and the extraordinary hope that Christ offers to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've heard this morning the powerful words of the baptism service, inviting Joseph and us to turn from darkness towards you and the light of the world, you, the light of the world. You expose what's going wrong and you guide us into healing and life and truth. Help us to drop our barriers to you this morning and to hear what you have to say. Show us the hope that you offer and give us courage to respond because you love us and you want to bless us and because your power enables us to live in your blessing now and forever. Amen. So, here's the thing. I have a problem. Okay, it's not what you think. You don't know me, guys. Okay. The problem I have is that I want to explain to you all how baptism offers a freer, more joyful, more caring life, even in the area of sex. But my problem is that you have probably already made your mind up one way or the other. You've heard countless magazines and films and sitcoms all telling you the same story, and it's this. For centuries, traditional morality has had us all in its suffocating grip. It's heaped shame on ordinary men and women, boys and girls, and only for the crime of wanting to be different. 
Chained to the past, this dead orthodoxy has nurtured hypocrisy and offered safe haven for abusers. No more. Change is on the way. We're breaking free from the shackles of bigotry and dead tradition. Our time has come. It's a time to find ourselves and to celebrate love wherever we find it. And if you people don't agree with us, then just move out of our way or we'll push you aside. Well, it's a powerful story. And over the last 60 years, it has completely changed the way that we do morality. So, just notice three things about this freedom story. The first is that you are the hero. Dig deep and you'll find within yourselves all that you need in order to find yourself and to be free. Secondly, your problem is society. Break free and all will be fine. Thirdly, you have the moral high ground. You're right and anybody who thinks differently to you is wrong and they need to grow up and get out of your way. It's a cool story. It's very flattering. But those three features that I pointed out create their own problems and I want to look at each of them. So let's talk about moral high ground first. Here's a spectrum. So six ways to critique a moral question. The three ways on the on the uh, left there, firstly, uh, well, they're all about respecting the individual. Firstly, there's care, protecting individuals from hurt. Then there's fairness, treating all people the same. Then there's liberty, number three, setting people free from oppression. Over on the right, we've got number four, loyalty, how I affect my nearest and dearest. We've got tradition, how we as a community have learned from our experience in the past. And then we've got, number six, sanctity of life, a bigger picture of reality. Now, 60 years ago, our instincts were with the right-hand values. A thing was good if it strengthened community life. But now we have left-hand instincts. If even just one person is suffering, treated unfairly or oppressed, that's worse than tearing the fabric of community, which enables more, many more, to live in larger freedoms, equalities, and mutual care. Now, this shift over the last 60 years has become embedded in the West. So now, now we think that these left-hand values are the only moral way to see the world. But they're not. There are far more people across the world, as well as many in the West, who think more in community-focused ways. So who has the moral high ground? Well, as a Christian, if I want to know where the moral high ground is, then I have to look to see where Jesus is standing. So let's look at his approach. Here is Jesus, in the reading we're just going to hear, confronted by an issue of sexual morality. It's the same reading for those of you who were with us last week that we heard then. A gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. 
The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were asking this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Julia. Well, listening, listening to that reading, you may think that Jesus agrees with the modern perspective. He protects and liberates that free-spirited individual from oppressive orthodoxy. Well, of course, that's not what Jesus is doing at all. Jesus knows that this is a trap. These men aren't concerned about the woman. They're concerned with trying to trap Jesus so that they've got a reason to accuse him. But Jesus is concerned about the woman. He'll deal with their trap, and he'll also deal with her needs. But Jesus is concerned about more than just her needs. He's concerned about one woman and also a group of men, all of whom, whose choices have driven them, each of them, far from their Heavenly Father. So when Jesus refused to, refuses to condemn the woman, yes, he does, one, care for the woman. Yes, two, he wants her hearing to be fair. Yes, three, he protects her from violence. All of this is contained in his first words to her. Neither do I condemn you. But over on the right, he also recognizes that she is a woman who has four, chosen to betray her husband and her children, five, undermined her community, and six, spat in the face of her God. So Jesus gently commands her, go now and leave your life of sin. For Jesus, the, the, sorry, the moral high ground isn't on the left or on the right. It's found by compassionately, humbly bringing the two together, holding them both at the same time. That's a real challenge 
but it's one that we avoid by responding from gut emotional instinct, either from the left or from the right. You'll remember that earlier I noted three features of the modern narrative of individual freedom. Well, we've addressed the issue of moral high ground, but now I, I need to return to the other two. They were, one, you need rescuing from the world's expectations about you, and two, being your own hero, you can do it yourself. To address those two issues, I want to tell you another true story. John's problems began in a bin. That's where he discovered pornography as a boy, in a rubbish bin on the military base where his father was stationed. He knew he shouldn't look, but the lewd, tantalizing pictures captivated him. The hook was set. John fed his sexual fantasies, and pornography's grip got a hold. Soon he was dabbling with alcohol and drugs and sex, belying his image as a nice Christian boy. At university, his alcohol and drug use rapidly accelerated, turning self-abusive. He failed his exams and he dropped out of university. Hoping to find direction, he joined the Navy, but things got worse. A drugs test uncovered his problem and he was denied promotion. Finally, he left. John met and married Angela, a beautiful Christian woman who knew nothing of his sexual addiction. He trained for the church but remained in secret slavery to pornography and drugs. He hoped that the birth of their first child and a lucrative sales job would help. But business trips only gave new opportunities for his sexual addictions. He longed to be free, but he couldn't escape their destructive stranglehold on his life. Well, when Angela finally discovered John's hidden life, he broke down and confessed everything. She forgave him, and she promised to stand with him through recovery. At last, John was free of secrecy. He could walk in truth, but he didn't stay there. Soon he was back to his old ways. This time, Angela would no longer tolerate his lies and selfish behavior ruining their family. After six years of marriage, she dropped her bombshell. She wanted a divorce. John's dreams of marriage, of family happiness, were gone. His marriage, his business, his ministry, torpedoed by a dark appetite he could not control. In despair, he flogged himself repeatedly with the thought, if only I had left that rubbish in the bin. Here is the hidden underside of the sexual revolution. Permissive sexual freedom hasn't delivered what it promised. People think they're going to be rescued from the unhappiness foisted upon them by society, but instead they find themselves plunged into an even deeper inner unhappiness. Statistics suggest now that far from leading to more and better success, promiscuity and temporary relationships have reduced the frequency and quality of sex across the country and more obviously, but ironically, leads to mounting isolation and loneliness. And people who are sucked into this unhappiness, this freedom, also find that they do not have the strength inside themselves to break free. Yes, we need rescuing, but we also need a rescuer. Well, by now, 
I hope we may be more ready for Paul's critique of the sexual permissiveness of his own day. It's going to help you if you open your Bibles to page 1147 and then keep them open after the reading. And just remember as you're reading, as you're listening, that Paul is talking to the church, not to society. The um, second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, and can indeed be found on page 1147. So it's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Helen. So what does Paul say to the Corinthians is the basic problem? Well, it's in the, in the middle of the passage, if you've still got it open, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, you might be thinking, I'd rather not be in the kingdom of God if I have to give up my personal freedom and live by these outdated rules. But that isn't it at all for St. Paul. For St. Paul, the kingdom of God is everything he can think of that is lovely and beautiful and noble and excellent and worthy of praise. It's the deepest, most enduring inner peace and outer creativity. It's a service which is perfect freedom. For Paul, even the worst suffering isn't worth comparing with the joy and the peace that is eternal in the kingdom of God. And the thing is, we aren't thrown out of this kingdom, but we can rule ourselves out. Let's face it, if you insist on self-fulfillment at the expense of others, at worshipping anything you like, 
You're not going to feel comfortable, are you, spending eternity with a God who abhors selfishness and can read the secrets of every heart. Paul says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So sin is serious. 1 Corinthians, the letter, shows us a church which is riddled with sin. People are involved in visiting prostitutes. They're getting drunk at communion. They're worshipping idols in the temples of other religions. Last week, we heard about incest with a stepmother. This week, church members are swindling one another and taking each other to court. What a jolly church you've joined. The Corinthians have been carrying on with all of this as if their lifestyle had no consequences at all. But Paul pulls them up sharply. Verse 9, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Corinthians have fallen into a classic trap. They've said to themselves, like the woman taken in adultery, Jesus has forgiven us. That's fantastic. So surely that means we can do anything we like because we're forgiven. And if necessary, Jesus will forgive us again later. Paul's response is absolutely not. Sin has terrible consequences for you and for your future. Verse 9, do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you choose to do your own thing and reject the king, you also reject his kingdom. You make yourself not one of his subjects and you forfeit your inheritance. Bad choice. So verse 9 to 10, Paul highlights a number of sins which when continuously repeated define who we are rather than being defined by Christ's kingship. And they fall into two main categories, sexual sins and financial sins. So under sexual sins, we've got the sexually immoral, like the man committing incest in chapter 5. We've got adulterers, people sleeping with someone not their wife or husband. We've got male prostitutes working in the temples of Corinth. And fifth on Paul's list, we have homosexual offenders, or in the Greek, more literally, those who actively practice homosexual sex. I just want to pause here a moment because I know this is a particularly sensitive topic these days. It's sensitive because it's splitting families and congregations and one congregation from another. And indeed, the Church of England, General Synod, has been struggling with this for years. And it's sensitive because many of us also find ourselves struggling to discover our identity amidst the confusion of our feelings within and the conflict of pressures around us without. So I just want to give a few brief observations about this. And the first is that I know that this is a really tough issue. It touches on one of the most personal things about us, our sexuality. And many here will have friends and people they love, members of their family, who would describe themselves as gay. Or it may be that it's an issue that you face yourself personally. I hope that what you will hear this morning will be like Jesus' response to that woman. Very caring, but also very truthful. The second thing is that this is actually about our identity. The sexual revolution tells us that we base our identity on how we feel, our sexual feelings. But our feelings change. It's hard enough being a child. But now, right now, we are being encouraged 
to encourage children to take lifelong decisions about their sexual identity when they're far too young to know themselves, to have settled into it. That's very tough. But worst of all, we're told that our identity is formed by our changeable sexual feelings and that that identity is fundamental to who we are. Our feelings defined, define who we are. So we're caught in a double jeopardy. We're confused about who we should be and we're trapped in who we've become. But Paul says our identity can be totally changed by submitting to Jesus as our king. We become someone new. As Jesus says, we can be born again, all over again. Our identity isn't determined by our sexual feelings or anything else. It's not determined by our past or our past choices, but by Jesus' choice for us. Thirdly, well, there's been a, sh a cultural shift, as we've been saying, which now says that whatever goes on between two consenting adults is their own business, and no one can judge them. However, we also know that two, what two consenting adults do in private has a massive impact on other people. And Paul says it has a massive impact on them as well. Basically, do we want to be in the kingdom of God? And if so, rather than listening to our culture, we should be listening to what God is saying to us. Fourthly, the Bible is really clear about this. Sex is a gift. It is a gift. And we'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. It's a gift from God to be used in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And anything outside that isn't God's intention for his gift. And that includes sex before marriage, it includes adultery, and it includes homosexual sex. God's best for us is monogamous heterosexual sex. Well, as we've heard today, Jesus recognizes that we often get into trouble and we need forgiving. But he also tells us we need to leave sinful ways of living behind us. Well, of course, this isn't the end of the story. We won't finish with this topic today. In two and three weeks' time, we'll be looking at how to flourish, to live in all the richness of God's kingdom, whether married or single. Fifthly, I know that many of us struggle in this area, but struggling with these things is often a sign of a heart that is genuinely seeking to obey God. Now, this is a fallen world we live in, and we are fallen people, and these issues touch every part of our life, including our sexual identity. And handling that in line with Jesus can be at great personal cost. But I just want to say, take courage. The woman taken in adultery and dragged before Jesus found to her astonishment that Jesus was much kinder and more forgiving than her accusers. But he did also challenge her behavior and her relationships. Jesus does welcome, he protects, and he forgives us. But he also won't accept just any behavior. He urges us to change. Well, I've done my best not to be glib or to speak lightly about this. If you're struggling in any of these areas, please do come and find me afterwards, or speak with Jit, or with Ruth, or another member of the, the church staff. Come and pray with someone afterwards or come and speak with us privately later if you'd like to chat further. The last thing I want to say is that this is not the only sin. 
Although listening to the news, you might, it might seem that the church thinks that it is. But that's not because that's the only thing that the church talks about as sin, but rather than it's the only thing that the newspapers are interested in the church talking about as sin, and that's not quite the same thing. Jesus tells us we have no right to condemn others for their struggles while ignoring our own. And Paul comes up with six other habitual sins besides sexual ones, which also redefine us away from Christ's character and kingdom. For instance, financial sins. Well, Paul's list mentions three. The greedy, the thieves, and the swindlers. Some things never change, do they? The desire for money and the power that money gives is as much a problem today as it ever has been, as it was in Paul's day. So the greedy. We know what greedy people look like, clearly not like us. We wouldn't recognize ourselves in that description, would we? Secondly, thieves. Well, we know who thieves are. They're people who steal from us. But would we include ourselves in that description if we borrowed from somebody else without quite putting it back? Swindlers. As well as con men, do we include ramping up our expenses, cooking the books, being dishonest with the taxman? Paul's list here isn't exhaustive. It's aimed at the Corinthian church and the struggles that they were having. So what would Paul include in, an, in a modern list for St. Jude's or for the church of today? Under the sexual category, I guess he would certainly include pornography. What else might he include? Under the financial category, definitely gambling. Excess consumerism, perhaps? Well, you can identify others for yourself. St. Peter says to us, whatever overcomes a person, by that he is enslaved. And Paul included gluttony and drunkenness in that too. So ask yourself this. Is there anything in my life that I can't help doing even though I know that it isn't what Jesus wants? Particular trains of thought, particular secret activities. I've tried to stop them, but I just can't do it. Well, if there are, I've got some really good news for you. Because in our passage, Paul now moves on to the possibility of change and freedom from these things. Paul's big word for this is sanctification. And there are two parts to sanctification. Firstly, changing our identity, and secondly, changing our character. So let's turn the page of the Bible and see what he says. Verse 11. According to the modern freedom and narrative that I was telling you earlier, we expect Paul to say this. This is what you are. Now change your ways and reinvent yourself. But instead, he says, and this is what some of you were. How can Paul say this when there's so much sin going on in the church? Is Paul contradicting himself? In the second half of the verse, it gets even worse. He says, you've already been made pure. How could that be the case? He uses three different baptism metaphors, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. They were washed, a household image. Filth is removed by being washed with water. They were sanctified, made into a clean um, vessel to be used in worship. They were justified, a guilty person being declared not guilty. But the Corinthians seem anything but washed and sanctified and justified. So what's going on here? Well, the answer to this is the key to how God sees us Seeks, sorry, so how God seeks to transform us and destroy sin in our lives. We have to become what He 
has already made us. In our baptism, believing in Christ, God, God gives us new identity. We are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified. And so the Christian life that follows, the life for Joseph, Joseph ahead, is a life of becoming what God has already made us. At the end of two, the previous chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Well, our culture and most other religions say, become a better person. Do it by your own effort and power. But the Christian faith says, allow Jesus to make you the person you already are by removing anything that's not part of your true identity. I guess some of you will have been to Florence and you'll have seen there the, uh, uh, the great statue by Michelangelo, uh, that world-famous statue of David. Many people still think it's the greatest statue that was ever made. And people asked him, how did he manage to make this statue? Oh, I should have got a picture of this, shouldn't I? How did he manage to make this statue so perfect? Such perfection. And his reply was simple. The sculpture of David has always been in this block of marble. And all I had to do was to chip away everything that wasn't David. And there he would be in perfection. This is what God does in his sanctifying work. He chisels off what's not our real identity. Sometimes it takes hard hammer blows, but God does it in love. Until what remains is who we actually really are through coming to Christ and his salvation. We are washed and sanctified and justified. Paul moves on and he tells us how God does this transforming work. So we're nearly at the end now. Verse, the second half of verse 11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God are the tools that God wields. So Paul is mentioning a double work, past and present. There's the past work in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus' name, which is primarily in what he did on the cross. The power of sin is destroyed through his forgiveness. The Apostle John said... The blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then there's the present work by the Spirit of God. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to take what Christ has done and to make it real for us, to apply it to our lives here and now. Living inside us, transforming us from the inside out. I wonder if you remember the Greek hero, Hercules. Perhaps you've uh, watched the Disney film with yours or someone else's children. Well, he was set, if you remember, 12 impossible tasks, thankfully not to achieve before breakfast. Number five of his set of labors was that in a single day, he had to clean all the stables of the king, housing all his horses and all his cattle, which hadn't been cleaned for 30 years. So it was a stinking, festering, dung-filled place, an impossible challenge. Can you imagine 30 years of dung? Okay. But Hercules succeeds not by shoveling away, but by diverting two nearby rivers to flow through the stables, to wash away all the filth in an instant, a mighty torrent of water. And this is the power of God by his Holy Spirit, 
unleashing a torrent of holiness through our lives to wash away the accumulated muck and filth of decades. There is a wonderful end to John's story, which I told you earlier. Eventually, John humbled himself and sought help from Jesus. By the power of Jesus' name and through God's Spirit, he was set free from everything that had enslaved him. Excuse me. He was washed and sanctified and justified. And now he and his family have been reunited. And he tells his story to others to show them that God has the power to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, to set us free. We've come to the end. How can we do this practically? How can we ask God by his spirit to come and change us and set us free from the habitual sins that define us? Well, the thing is, we have to partner with God because, as they say, he never does anything within us without us. So I'd like to offer you three R's, three words beginning with R. Repent, receive, request. Repent of the sin, the act of rebellion against King Jesus, choosing a new way of living. Receive your new identity. I am washed, I am sanctified, I am justified. And then request the power of the Holy Spirit to come and break the power of sin, washing it away. Well, there is an explanation of baptism in a rather unexpected context, but one that we have to live with throughout our lives. I think I'd better leave the last words to Jesus. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Amen.